I always tell Matt how soccer explains the world because we go to new markets and someone's played with someone that I know. It's crazy. There's a broker in, in Nashville that we went and met with. And he's like, yeah, I grew up playing high school soccer with your buddy, Kerry Talley. And Kerry Talley had an amazing professional career in Major League Soccer. And we play together and people remember you. That's it. You want people to remember you. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Dan Kennedy. Dan used to be a professional soccer player with the LA Galaxies and is now the co-founder of Driven Capital Partners, a real estate investing company focused on multifamily investments. We had his partner, Matt Seamus, on the show back in episode 48. In this episode, Dan will share his story of how he went from pro soccer player to full-time real estate investor. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and how you got into real estate investing. Well, Sean, thanks for having me. This is Dan Kennedy with Driven Capital Partners. I got into real estate investing after uh, after the recession, so my timing was was fortunate. And I started investing in single family homes, and it worked out great. And it just wanted to be able to scale more, to be honest. And uh, my partner and I had strategized over the years on how we could leave our real jobs or prepare for what was next by having a, a real estate investment company. And now we started Driven Capital Partners and we syndicate and sponsor real estate investment deals. That sounds super exciting. So talk about your journey there. What were you doing before real estate? Yeah. So I, unique career, Sean, as you know, um, played professional soccer for 12 years. I was at undergrad at UC Santa Barbara playing soccer there. And that's when I actually got interested in, in real estate, uh, just reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. One of my mentors uh, is a guy named Bob Tuller, who is a principal and founder of Radius Group on the Central Coast of in California, based in Santa Barbara. And I, I just had this sense that once my soccer career was done, which I didn't know when that would be, I would be in real estate my thinking of, of what job I would have in real estate has evolved over the years. And I played in Puerto Rico for two years, played down in Chile for a year, came back and played the majority of my career for a team called Chivas USA in Los Angeles, uh, which is now called LAFC. And then I went and played in Dallas uh, with FC Dallas and I retired with the Los Angeles Galaxy. And I grew up a Galaxy fan, and one of the reasons why I came back to the Galaxy was to go to business school at USC. I went to the Marshall School of Business, and while I was there, there was a, there was plenty of, of my classmates that their families were in real estate, and so I started investing in syndications, and it was um, it, it was just an, a, a very positive experience. In 2011, I started buying single-family homes up in Stockton, California, where my wife is from. And we were purchasing homes for $100,000, renting them out for 900 bucks a month. And uh, we were generating about $300 a month in cash flow on those investments. Uh, we weren't very sophisticated. We just knew that we could rent them out and service our debt and create some, some passive income. 
but as as time evolved and I made a little bit more money in my playing career, and that led me to Dallas and started buying, I bought a home in Dallas and, and remodeled it and then bought another house in that neighborhood and actually did a light value add and leased it for, for cash flow and then flipped it a year later for tax purposes. I, I wanted to hold it for a year. Uh, but all of this required a certain amount of legwork from me, Sean. You know, like I had to go through the process of sourcing um, the investment, uh, signing on the loan, managing the property. And when I invested in my first syndication, it was completely passive. It was in a student housing development right off the campus of USC. And it was just the easiest investment I ever made and the highest quality of asset that I ever had owned. And I didn't have to do anything. It was also uh, one of the greatest rates of return I've received on my capital. So immediately that that resonated with me and and thinking about professional athletes and um, investing uh, in time. And this is a service that I thought could be really powerful in that landscape. So that's that's kind of how Driven Capital Partners evolved in my mind was that if we can create an investment shop that folks can uh, passively invest their capital in and we can provide higher rates of return with less time uh, invested in the actual uh, project, then that is a great service to provide. Cool. So it's interesting because I think you're the only person that's, that I've talked to who got into real estate to replace their W-2 income, not because you are not like happy at your job, but it's more like you don't know when the, when the clock's going to run out for this particular career. Yeah, Sean, that's right. I mean, all professional athletes have a short career. I mean, you think about most careers last 30 years. You can start working in your 20s and you're going to work well into your 50s, 30, 35 years, and then you're hoping that you're going to retire. And the one negative about being an athlete is you have this uh, very short timeline uh, on how you can make money playing a sport. The, the, the real negative is that it can end at any moment through injury for a variety of factors form. And so you can make a lot of money, uh, but you need to prepare more than the average Joe for retirement because you're going to be retired in your 30s. I mean, that's the reality of it. And that's if you have a good career. So I was always thinking, okay, well, I want to put my money to work while I'm playing in a way that when I retire, I have some flexibility on the job that I take next because I knew I was going to have to work. Then I had a decision to make. Do I want to stay in the game or do I want to go do something else? And the reality is, is the opportunity in the game wasn't what I wanted it to be. And I wanted more control over my life and my family and my time. And so that's what's led me to this is I, I, I just have this deep belief that by building this business with my partner, Matt, and creating this service and value for investors, uh, when we fast forward five years from a personal standpoint, I'll be in a place of, of much more freedom. So what was your timeline for all this? Like, were you still playing and going to USC? Yeah, so I, I retired in 2017 from playing soccer. And in 2016, I started business school at USC in conjunction with playing um, what was my final year. And at the time, I didn't know that. It, it was my final year with the LA Galaxy. And it was the best decision I could have made um, was to start business school. And 
uh, further my education, refresh on some of the skills that as an athlete, maybe you, you don't exercise those muscles of your mind. And then it also, I, I became more familiar with private equity and I studied finances uh, much more thoroughly and refreshed on that skill to underwrite deals. And then coincidentally, I started investing in syndications. Business school is supposed to be a three-year timeline for me to graduate, but uh, we got pregnant with, with our daughter, Nev, and I ended up retiring. So we decided just to kind of rip off the bandaid and, and, and go full-time at school. And I had some obligation with the Galaxy's front office. So as I wound down my position with the Galaxy and, and wrapped up school, that's when Matt and I decided that it was time to start Driven Capital Partners. And Matt was, as you know, Sean, at Facebook. And he, we have a similar similar investment background and, and we're completely aligned with our families and our friendship. And we are very, we have very complementary skill sets to one another with very different professional uh, networks to rely upon for raising capital. Mm -hmm. So when you were investing in Stockton, I remember, I think Matt was doing the same thing too, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So Matt grew up with my wife and our wives are best friends. And it, it's funny because when Matt was at Facebook and he was in the prime of his tech career, um, that's when I hit the, the kind of the heart of my professional playing career. And so we were both earning decent money where we could go and invest on the side. And this was, this became our side hustle. And in order to go out and syndicate and raise capital, the one thing that we both believed in and felt was really important was that this was not a part-time job to go out and raise money to, to syndicate and put into real estate investments. I think it's important for people that are investing that we are doing this full time. Yeah. And so are you choosing multifamily because it's just a bigger way to scale? In the beginning of Driven Capital Partners, we focused on multifamily as the asset class to invest in. And it's because of the skill set we had from the single family home space. It's not entirely different. You're just looking at 40 to 200 units instead of one single family home. And so there was some comfort there. What we found uh, in 2018 when we kicked this thing off was the cap rate compression throughout the United States really led us to the Southeast for multifamily because that's where we felt like the yield was. And we were more comfortable playing in that space where there was more cash flow upon acquisition. It also, the competitive nature of the multifamily space has led us to different asset classes. And so we are, we own office uh, and we own land and we own multifamily today, but we are looking at medical office and we have in contract medical office today. And um, we are looking to get into the triple net space as well, just because th this whole thing started with Matt and I thinking about where we want to be in inve as investors. And we want to own a variety of asset classes and in a variety of markets that we believe in. And so you guys put in money into your own deals as well, right? Always. Yeah, we are the first we are the first dollar in every deal. And typically we represent anywhere from five to ten percent of the equity invested in any deal. But with that being said, I mean we're there's a smaller deal that we're looking at that we we likely will just buy outright. Just Matt and I. So mm -hmm. and so talk about your journey into multifamily. So like what did you do when you first got started? I mean, it started with very much an education process of of learning and reading and listening to podcasts and figuring out what markets we want to be in and why. 
and making sure that we weren't we weren't heading into this thing and going faster than we were maybe prepared for from a from an underwriting and and management standpoint. Um, we ended up buying our first multifamily in in Huntsville, MSA, in a, in a town called Priceville, which is uh, one of the nicest suburbs in Huntsville's MSA and has the nicest high school. And this was uh, this was a, a great point for us was to think about, okay, we're in a growing market, tertiary market in the Southeast. There's a bunch of job development happening that has not come online yet. Uh, to own 2016 and 2017 built uh, multifamily complex that we're purchasing at almost a seven cap uh, gave us um, a sense of security for our first deal, right? And now this this deal, we, when we acquired it, rents were averaging uh, just under six hundred and seventy dollars uh, a month per unit, and now we just leased up a, a unit for eight hundred and forty five dollars. Um, not even a year later, so it's it's going really well, um, and it's been a it's been a great space for us to learn in, uh, because you I think you you just need more cash reserve than you anticipate. And so, what is your buying criteria right now? Well, the, the, for instance, in California, w- when we're looking at multifamily projects, we're looking at um, opportunities that yeah, it's going to be a, a very low cap rate because whatever we're going to be purchasing is going to have some heavy lift value add component to it. We were looking at a, a class A location, but probably a C product type um, in Summerlin, California, as, as an example that we would be purchasing for about a three and a half cap, but the rents were so far below market. And even with the California rent control coming uh, online, the just cause eviction. I mean, this this property needs new electrical. It needs new plumbing. Uh, you would you would be repurposing this building uh, and creating a better outdoor living environment that would allow you to achieve, I think, actually above market rents because every unit has an ocean view. So in California, we look for something that has some really heavy levers to pull that will take a, a lot of investment, probably two to two and a half years to stabilize. Uh, and once you stabilize that cash flow, we'd be looking to refinance or, or sell out of the property. Um, in the Southeast, uh, we're looking in markets that have more favorable cap rates upon acquisition. And Huntsville is one of them. Atlanta is one of them. Um, the Carolinas. We look in Tennessee as well. Um, and we're looking for something uh, that is we have proof of market rents in the, in the neighboring area within a quarter mile. Uh, we're not talking about a mile away that uh, another apartment complex is getting uh, rents that we're trying to achieve. We want something um, that has pr- been proven within the market and our underwriting will be what we consider to be conservative because we're not going to go and try to do a value add play in which we have to achieve rents, rents that do not exist. The luxury about buying in, in Huntsville or Atlanta is that you can still go and find six cap apartment acquisitions. And if you're acquiring at a six cap and uh, you can increase rents 20%, uh, there's a significant amount of cash flow in those assets for uh, for investors. And so 
We just want to be in in these markets that are yeah high yield upon acquisition and growing for the right reasons because the local municipalities and uh, businesses are investing in those geographic locations as well. So that's that's leading to population growth. So you do invest in California. Like, do you invest anywhere in the Bay Area by any chance? No, we do not. As you know, real estate's very local and the competitive advantage that we try to create is largely relationship-based um, and getting access to deals. So uh, fortunately, you know, I have some great relationships in, in Santa Barbara. I have some great relationships in Southern California that allow us to see um, opportunities maybe a little bit before they come to market. Um, but the, those relationships also allow us to access owners that are in markets that we want to be in um, that are potentially willing to sell. So we we will utilize our broker contacts to go and send out um, off-market offers to owners and try to engage them and give them a price that is fair, uh, that they are happy with, and allows us to not compete with anybody else, quietly go through our due diligence process and be more in control of buying the asset and understanding that we we have this vision to take it to a certain vintage that will allow us to achieve market rents. The one thing that we're looking to do in California is utilize what's called the California State Density Bonus. Um, this is more of a development play, but you can use this bonus on existing apartment complexes. You just have to bring the building up to current code standards. But this play allows you to achieve affordable housing on site at 10%. And then you can increase the density of the apartments by 35%. So if you, I was looking at a 60 unit apartment unit complex in Long Beach, that's trading for $550,000 a door. It's, it's very expensive. But if you were to apply the density bonus, you could, you could fit 81 units on site. And you that means you'd have to go in and subdivide 20 of the units to, to get that increased density. But then you drive down the acquisition costs per door, right? Because you have, you've now have, have 21 more units than you did upon acquisition. And it takes, it, it takes a, an extensive, uh, extensive amount of planning and the risk is all in execution with construction costs. Does Long Beach have rent control as well? Yeah, I mean, the entire state of California now has has rent control. Long Beach was one of the cities, one of the only local cities in, in Los Angeles County that did not have any rent control restrictions prior to, to the new bill. I saw for like the new bill, if you do significant improvements, I think you're allowed to remove or displace those tenants, right? Yeah, just cause. So the, that's where for um, developers or investors, this bill is not doom and gloom. Because for a value-add investor, if you are acquiring an asset that is in uh, need of great repair, then you have just cause to remove those tenants. And there may be some tenant relocation, but these are things that you can account for. And all we want is certainty upon acquisition. So if we can account for uh, relocation costs, um, and we know that we have just cause to remove tenants, and we will give them the relocation fee... And then we can confidently back into a number that makes sense for us to acquire the asset. Now, there may be a larger delta between what the seller wants to get for the asset and what we can pay. But overall, um, unless those seller, unless the seller of an old apartment complex in, in California 
is willing to hold on to their asset, if they're in a position where they need to sell, a value-add buyer is going to be able to pay the highest price. Yeah. Before, I know like in San Francisco where there's rent control, they would do cash for keys and they would pay them between fifty to like $150,000 to get them out. Here, I, I heard it's just one month's rent. So like that's definitely not as bad as 150k. Yeah, that's right. And the local municipalities like San Francisco can still hold a higher standard. Um, and they will, but places like Santa Barbara, places like Long Beach, yeah, one month's rent. And it, I think it may even be capped up to $5,000. So we just underwrite $5,000. We will, we will work to get future tenants uh, relocated and we will, we will have a property management company in place that will help them with that relocation. Yeah. So how were you getting brokers to take you guys seriously when you guys were first getting started? Uh, it was it was a challenge, uh, especially because we 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 were going to Nashville, which is one of the hottest markets in the United States. And the reality is, when we were starting, we didn't have the means to be taken seriously on a large apartment complex. So we found two meaningful ways uh, to be uh, persuasive or taken seriously. One of them was partnerships. Um, going in with an operator that has expertise in that marketplace and also has a track record and following on with them and just placing capital with a, another operator. That's what we, that's what got us into Atlanta as a market and multifamily. And we invested in a 646 door apartment complex there with an expert operator. And now we've had the opportunity to sit on the ownership team and, and learn a little bit along the way as well. Uh, so that's a very meaningful way to go into uh, a new market or to get started is just to, to to be a partner on a deal. And the other way is you 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 have to go to these markets in person. Huntsville is a great example of prior to our acquisition of Priceville Manor townhomes, we weren't getting phone calls returned. And it's a different story you tell when you say, yeah, we're from California, uh, but we come to Huntsville every quarter. And we own townhomes in Priceville. We own four acres, soon to be 18 acres in Cummings Research Park. Um, and we're in contract on uh, two different medical offices. The, this story gives brokers locally the idea that we are serious. And then you look for potential partners on deals as well. And sometimes those are brokers. And how are you raising funds for your first few syndications? Well, friends and family. It's rapport is probably the biggest or the most important attribute of any syndicator because you, you need to build trust with people. And part of that, if we fast forwarded five or 10 years, or we look at some of these um, investment shops that have a great track record, that rapport is a little bit different when you're telling the story of, you know, we've been doing this for 10 years and look at our track record and how successful we've been and all the capital that we've, we've returned. But for us, we were just getting started. So it's about telling our story and what we're trying to achieve and getting people to buy in. And the momentum of doing deals helps us tell that story uh, better and better. So for your very first deal, what were you guys raising? And then how much of that was all from family and friends? Yeah. So the first deal was the Priceful Manor deal that I've talked about a couple times and that was $500,000 raise. And really what led Matt and I to that deal was us willing to say, well, listen, if we can't raise any money, we can buy it ourselves. And in fact, it's been such a good deal. We would have been happy doing that, but for the sake of driven capital partners and where we want to go, the best thing we can do is raise the majority of the money because that allows us to go do more deals. It, it was actually tricky because it was around the holidays. And so we had to 
what we call pass the hat before we had established any type of investor network. Um, and we had prepped people and talked to people about what we were doing. And some of my teammates have known through the years that I've made pretty good single family home investments, that cash flow. And so then it just became a, an action item to say, Hey, if you're, if you're really interested, then, then let's do this. And you, and the first deal was definitely the hardest, even just raising 500 grand. But then subsequently, only a few months after that, we raised about 2 million bucks in subsequent deals side by side. Uh, and that's what we're hoping. We're hoping to close out this year with uh, with three or four more deals that we have to go out and, and raise three, four million dollars. Nice. And so what are you typically giving your investors who pull money with you guys? We, we would like to have it as a eight pref uh, with a 70-30 split. That's where we start um, investments at. And sometimes you can't achieve those exact terms. So you can uh, easily say, hey, you know what? We're going to give the investors 90% and we'll take 10% of the deal in order to achieve that eight pref and make it worth their time. And then we become, as the GP is split, more favorably to the investors, we become more of just a service provider. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I see some pretty ridiculous ones like Grand Cardone's <laughs> 65, 35 split. And I was like, wow, I don't even know if he gives the prep, but yeah, he, I don't think he does, you know, and that's, that's um, to me, the story we're telling is we want to be a hundred percent aligned with our investors. And we want to do well when the investments go well. And we want to protect the investors when maybe investments don't meet our projected returns. And the best way to do that is to give a high pref. Um, they get paid first. And, you know, if, if we're hoping for a 15 IRR, that's that's one of our hurdles. If it ends up being a 10% IRR, well, the investors are still getting the lion's share of, of all of that rate of return. And we are only participating a very little amount um, from a GP perspective. Yeah, but you're still getting experience and you're getting that rapport building like you were saying. So it's kind of worth it. Yeah. And I think, and Sean, one of the reasons why I, I like this business is we're doing deals that we think we can achieve almost a 15% return on year over year when you look at the uh, investment as a whole. And that gives you a certain amount of wiggle room. And if we were to come back to you and you understanding the risks of investing in real estate and three years passes and say the reality is, listen, Sean, sorry, we didn't achieve our, our projected returns. Um, and we're disappointed about that. Uh, but you know, we didn't lose any money here. We still return 10% a year for you as a sponsor. We made significantly less money in the deal and we're going to be better moving forward. So let's go find you another deal that we think we're a little bit smarter on. Yep. So talk about your, your the breakdown of the roles between you and Matt for your partnership. Yeah, we we get more defined as the days pass. And Matt is very focused on our acquisitions and our underwriting, particularly on the commercial side. Um, I still source investments through my broker network um, and I still underwrite deals, but it's more back of the napkin. And if I can stir up something that's interesting um, from brokers or from another potential partner, uh, on the on the GP side, then, you know, in the end, I typically take it to Matt and let him do his financial modeling, or we'll go and outsource it to someone who's an expert in modeling a certain asset class. 
you know, once we get it to a point where we're making offers, then we sit down and, and really go through the deal thoroughly uh, together. And, and we try to brainstorm, you know, what, what could go wrong here. That's really the conversation. I do more of the asset management or all of the asset management. So once we are in ownership of a project, that's where I take over and deal with any tenants, uh, deal with any property managers and uh, kind of lay out the business plan or the strategy going forward um, and make sure that we're tracking accordingly. And this is something that, you know, Matt and I review on a weekly basis. He reports to me on the acquisitions and I report to him on the assets managed. Uh, And then we'll both write some education material to send out to our investors, but that's probably only maybe one piece every month or two because we don't want to over inundate folks' inboxes. And then I do all of the investor communications for all those investors that own assets under our umbrella. And then the reality is, is we both raise capital. That'll never change. I mean, that's that's what makes us strong is we both have that skill set and we both have built rapport with folks that are willing to invest with us. And as a full-time investor, you've been doing this for about two years full-time now? Yeah, that's that's right. We've been working on this for a long time and what it would look like. And Driven Capital Partners was established in, in May of 2018, but this was a conversation and this was a plan that we had iterated on for more than a handful of years. But it was about formalizing a business in order to be able to go raise capital. And then, you know, from, from the... the formalizing our business, we left our jobs, we quote unquote, announced ourselves, right? And then this bit, as I was explaining to you before we hopped on the pod, um, you know, you you get to a point where you think you have deals done and you lose them. And that's the reality of the business. That's why this is such a tough business. We spend a significant amount of time and sometimes even a, a, a good chunk of money uh, getting deals to a place where we can we can buy them. And for a variety of reasons, deals can fall through. And sometimes it's you're at the tail end of due diligence and you have um, money hard and you find out from one of the tenants that's an anchor tenant in a medical office space that they're going to move out at the end of their lease in seven years, which that seems like a long way away. But the last thing we want to do is buy an asset that is a ticking time bomb. Right. Or we feel like we're going to have to, you know, go solve some problems in seven years on that we're not confident we can solve. Because if the anchor tenant leaves in a medical office park, then you likely will have other tenants leaving as well. Recently, we had an off market deal that we had spent maybe six months on working through slowly at the seller's pace. And the deal just as after we had an LOI signed, the seller sold it to somebody else. And so we don't, you know, we don't know if we were used as a, just a pawn in a, in a larger game, but we had to move on. Today, we found out that a, a deal that we thought was a green light ended up getting backed up. We couldn't access the information we needed uh, in order to, to go and raise capital. So we had to walk away from it. And so this is the, the, de- the, the deal flow is important that you have a lot of things going on at once so that with the things that fall off, don't set back your ability to go and close on other investments. And so I think that's one thing we've learned is that we, we now have the bandwidth and experience to, to attack multiple investments at the same time. And, and actually knowing that things are going to unravel even after you get them into contract. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, you definitely need to have as much deal flow as you can. Otherwise, you're going to feel, I guess, too desperate for deals and you might end up closing on something that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, uh, it, it's better to walk away from a bad deal than, than force yourself to, to purchase something. And I think the, the medical office is probably the best example of, of telling our story about, well, the anchor tenant wasn't leaving for seven years. It was like an eight and a quarter cap acquisition. There was still a lot of cash flow. And, and it would have paid a great yield uh, through that seven years. But we, we didn't like the profile of holding this asset for five years in order to try to sell it and then going to take it to market and having the new buyer understand that, well, the anchor tenants leaving in two years, this property isn't worth what you guys are saying it's worth. Yeah, that's right. You have to sell it with a, with a worse story than what you guys are buying it for. That's right. That's right. So what are some of the challenges that you guys are facing now? The biggest challenge is, is what I just kind of laid out in front of you. And we're a small shop and we're just building a book of business. And so we, we are bootstrapping this. And by no means are we in a position where the cash flows from Driven Capital Partners um, are such that Matt and I can, can live a, a comfortable life or employ a couple employees. So we're in, we're in the growth phase of early growth stages of, of our business. And we're not desperate for deals and that's a discipline and that's a decision. And that's, what's going to allow us to stand the test of time. But we want to make sure at the same time, we create momentum with every investor meeting we have by showing deals. And so I would say we have a steady flow of deals coming through our inbox. The biggest obstacle has been as we get to the finish line on those deals, we've just had some of them blow up recently. Mm -hmm. And what do you think is next for you guys? We want to steadily grow and we have a, some short-term goals over the next 12 months that we would like to achieve. And we look at it, you know, when we started, it was like, okay, in the first year that's on a thousand doors. Well, well, we're at 700. That's pretty good. And next year, I think maybe it's more along the lines of, let's see at, at the end of 2020, can we have 75 million in assets managed? I think that's got to be our our, our next goal over the next 15 months here. Um, because I, I can see, uh, into our future a little bit over the next six months, I think we're going to probably have six deals. So once we get those, uh, acquired and buttoned up, then we'll take a deep breath, make sure we have everything stabilized, heading in the right direction. And then we throttle down again and, and go on acquisition mode. So are you doing more outreach to brokers to get more relationships and more networking? It's constant. It's constant. And, you know, there's, for instance, Phoenix and Tucson are markets we like, but we don't have great relationships in. So we're looking, we're actually going to look for an operating partner there. And I think we found one. Um, so this will allow us to participate in one or two investments, not take on all the risk and maybe only uh, raise a million dollars for each deal. Only. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, and that's, you know, it's a good thing. Uh, but that's our kind of our, our goal is to go raise a million bucks for each deal, start small, understand the market, understand how our relationship works with a, with a local operator. And uh, if, if all things go well, then we go and try to take down a bigger piece of the pie. So Huntsville is a great example because it, we've done it and you start small, get a feel for it, build your local management team, get a good contractor under your belt. And then you feel like you can go out and attack a 200 unit project. Yeah. So you guys aren't going out of your way to cold call these brokers anymore. I think your strategy now is to like find a partner who's local there and then 
Fine. Yeah. But we also, I, I would say the, the markets that we want to be in, we, ha we have broker relationships with. So it's just about, you know, weekly calls to those brokers and reminding them that you're interested in that market. <laughs> Matt and I, to your point, how do you guys divide up your time? We both wear a lot of hats. We both wear a lot of hats. I said from, from the highest level, Matt's acquisitions, I'm asset management, but we're both trying to, to spark that fire for, uh, for deal flow. Wow. Weekly is a lot. I mean, I've been calling agents about on a one month cadence and they're already kind of like, then you call me a lot, nothing new. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it depends on the market. What markets are you interested in, Sean? I mean, I'm doing something different. It's a single family rehabs here in the Bay area. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then that's maybe there's a different pace to that, to that game. Right. And for us, uh, the inside track on a multifamily deal right now is probably the key ingredient to an acquisition because um, most most things that get onto the market have been picked over a handful of times. Doesn't mean there's not value there to purchase, but you know we we want to make sure that hey, any conversations you have or anything coming online, even if it's just a, a note of an email, you know, hey, what's going on over there, fellas? It's just checking in. Um, or we're coming to town, but face-to-face -face meetings still seem to be the most meaningful way to access deals because when you get in front of people, they open up. Absolutely. And so what tips do you have for new investors who want to get into commercial multifamily? Well, I, I would recommend starting how I did, and that's as a passive investor. Uh, it was a great way to access all docs, uh, all information, uh, kind of underwrite the deal on my own, and then see firsthand how professionals communicate with me and maybe the the standard at which I should try to I should try to do business. So that was a great a great first step for me. And then it'll also give you a little bit of confidence going into the space. And you can say, hey, listen, I, yeah, I own a student housing development in downtown LA and adjacent to USC. And that's the truth. And it helps tell the story. Because the reality is if there's a multifamily broker that's any good at his job, he's got a, a bench of investors that he takes good deals to because the reality is he's selling their deals. So he's incentivized to get more in front of them. So how are you going to stand out? Well, you probably got to go take him to coffee or take him for a beer and just tell him and be honest, tell him or her where you're at and where you're starting and where you, where you want to be. And uh, typically that the next step would be to do a smaller deal in your backyard that you can get your hands on and you can manage and you can really own. I'm sure your unique career as a soccer player and like a mini celebrity was pretty eye-opening for all these brokers, right? <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I, I wouldn't consider myself uh, a celebrity, um, but it's funny because I've definitely had calls with brokers, whether it's locally here in Long Beach or uh, in Dallas, I had a few calls with brokers in Dallas that were like, were, were you the goalkeeper for FC Dallas? Because Dan Kennedy is a pretty generic name. And yeah, it's just, it's funny to tell that, tell that story. Nice. I always tell Matt how soccer explains the world because we go to markets, we go to new markets and someone's played with someone that I know. It's crazy. Like I, there's a broker in, in Nashville that we went and met with and he's like, yeah, I grew up playing high school soccer with your buddy, Kerry Talley and Kerry Talley had an amazing professional career in major league soccer. And we played together on Chivas USA and it's just completely random. There you go. Instant rapport. <laughs> That's right. Do sports. 
Well, and people remember you. That's it. You want people to remember you. Right. Yeah. It makes you stand out for sure. Now, if you could go back in time, like let's say back to 2008, maybe 2010, when you were first getting started, what would you tell yourself? Make this a job. It shouldn't be your side hustle. I had the time. I had the capital while I was playing professional soccer to make this a full-time job. And I didn't. Uh, but I was just comfortable and I was conservative and the great recession just happened. And I was, you know, just like, okay, one, one year, one a year, one single family home a year. That was my flow. And I should have been more open to learning. Um, I should have been more open to working. Uh, and now, you know, they, all, all you do is you look back, everyone missed out on a little bit of opportunity, so you can't kick yourself. Uh, but now it's about just being disciplined and smart and trying to do deals that you can understand the downside. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people ask the same question too. They always say the same thing where like they wish they started earlier or they wish they took it more seriously. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who are like my age right now in this current market where everyone's kind of scared. Mm -hmm. You know, there is some fear right now of a impeding recession. You know, we don't know what's going on with our, our trade wars and whatnot. Right. But would you recommend people, you know, be more focused on this, if they want to do this full time? Well, I mean, the way I look at it is what the, what's the opportunity cost? For an investor, your money is going to be somewhere. If, if Sean, you have a hundred grand to invest, you're not just leaving that savings account. So what's, right. where's it going to be? It's going to be in the market or it's going to be in, in real estate or it's going to be in a business or bonds. Whatever it's in, there's, there's associated risk. The way I look at it is, well, if I do my homework... And I think I understand the upside in an investment and I'm comfortable with the worst case scenario. I mean, across the United States, vacancies dropped to at most 10% vacancy rates for multifamily and the recession and rents dropped upwards of eight, I think, percent. And that's a very generic statement because you're talking about across the entire United States, but if you can underwrite an apartment deal and say, okay, well, I'm going to invest this much in it. I'm going to make it one of the nicer places on the street to live. And if it was 80% occupied, I could still service my debt. If rents dropped 10%, I can still service my debt. Then you're in a position that you're, you're pretty, you're pretty well insulated and you're not going to go lose your, you're not going to go lose your investment in a market scenario. If that was invested in the stock market, I mean, stock market can fluctuate dramatically. So this is what we call a non-market correlated return. And that's why I, I like multifamily probably the most out of any asset class, but it's just the most expensive right now. You know, the way I see it is if you put your money in the market, you could make money, but I don't think you really learn anything. Whereas if you're doing this, you're like actually doing the business. You're like getting experience and you're getting better over time. Well, and I mean... If you go and underwrite a handful of businesses, maybe you invest in those businesses, but and then you got to you got to analyze their quarterly um, financial reports to stay on top of it, or you just pass your money off to a financial advisor, and they say diversify, diversify, diversify because they can't be an expert in all of their holdings. It's just too much information to process. So that's where, you know, I, I always stand firm on my argument with investors is saying, hey, for, your money's going to be invested somewhere else. The question is, do you want to own real estate? Do you want the benefits of owning real estate? You want the tax benefits. You want to create long-term wealth. 
if you continue to shake your head yes, then this is the most efficient way to, to invest. It doesn't take any time, doesn't take any energy other than looking through the OM one time, us having a, a couple conversations to address any questions or concerns you have. And if you get to the point where, yes, I still want to be invested in this, then once you invest, you don't have anything to do. It's brilliant. You know, in the single ham family home space, I mean, it's highly time consuming. And I still, on a monthly basis, the single family homes that I own, I, I check in with the tenants. I process, I, I mean, I do it through an app, but process their payments and then manage the finances of all of it because the property management fee would kill me on those assets. Hmm. So do you have any last tips for our listeners before we end the show today? Well, if uh, any of this was intriguing, feel free to reach out. Dan at drivencap.com is my email. You can go to drivencap.com to check out our website and sign up for our monthly mailer. And that'll give you some education material. And um, you would be able to see uh, the deals that come through our pipeline. And the way we raise capital is through close relationships. So you can't just add on to our website and, and invest in any, in any deal, but you can see how we're doing business. And if, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much an open book. If anyone wants to, to reach out and give me a, an email or set up a phone call, we do free consultations for 30 minutes. So feel free to reach out. Awesome. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. Cool. Thank you. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Prepare for the future early. Dan knew that his job as a professional soccer player was limited, so he had to figure out a long-term solution quickly. The risk in investing in multifamily assets and development is all in the execution of the construction. You need to be creative to find the true value of a property. If you want to be a syndicator, it's best to start off as a passive investor so that you know how to be a good operator. And finally, if you want to be successful in this business, you need to go into it full-time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. And if you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up in San Jose twice a month at meetup.com slash everythingrei. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N. R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.